turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 5 as we're continuing our series, Rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. To turn with me to Mark 5 this morning as we look at uh, Jesus and his encounter. Last week we looked at Jesus and his encounter with the Gerasene demoniac. This week Mark paints an even uh, greater picture of Christ and his uh, interfacing with two people who are in such desperate situations. We saw last week this Gerasene demoniac was in a desperate situation and yet Jesus and his power came in and healed him, delivered him from the demonic oppression that was in his life and brought him to sanity and he was fully clothed and in his right mind. And today we're going to see Jesus and his encounter with two more folks who are in desperate situations. And we see, as we saw in Mark last week, that we live in a broken world, don't we? It doesn't take long for you as you grow older, even at a young age, you begin to see that we live in a world that's broken and hurting. And so we're going to see that this morning as we look at Mark 5 together this morning. We're going to look at Mark 5, 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. Before we read, let me pray for us. Father, this is your word. Pray this morning you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the truth of the gospel, the power and the person of Jesus this morning. So open our eyes and our hearts to see that this morning. We pray, Lord, I pray for your help, Lord, as I am just a man and I'm weak and I'm not perfect and I struggle and I need you, Jesus. So pray that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, this morning. Would you give me unction and power this morning as we look at your word and as I preach your word this morning. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, this is Mark 5, 21 through the end of the chapter. Let's read God's word together. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and was beside the sea. <clears throat> then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well, be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about and in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't fear, do not fear, but only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at Jesus. He put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, 
and told them to give her something to eat. Well, today we meet Jairus and his daughter who is facing imminent death. You know, death's not supposed to happen, right? We live in a world, and when you think about a child who is dying, facing imminent death, and I'm a parent, that really hits close to home with me, you can almost feel Jairus' desperation, right, as he's coming to Jesus, because Jesus was his last option, so he thought for his little girl. And then we meet this woman uh, who suffered with this disease, this chronic disease, this chronic debilitating illness that was destroying her life and destroying the lives of those around her. In fact, fixing her sickness, seeking uh, a fix for her illness had become her life, really had become her identity, and she has this issue of bleeding. And so we see that in Mark 5, just like we saw last week, we encounter two folks here in Mark 5 who they sought out the best of human help, and that human help couldn't help them. Uh, You know, we saw that last week with the Gerasene demoniac, right? He was uh, absolutely insane. He was driven insane by these demonic forces. He was... Uh, possessed by literally hundreds if not thousands of demons. His life was a wreck. He was naked, cutting himself with stones in the tombs, living in the tombs. And what did the people do to try to fix the situation? Well, they put him outside of the city. They tried to chain the guy. And even the best human solutions for trying to aid this guy had failed miserably, right? And we see that this morning with Jairus and with this lady. The best of human solutions weren't helping them. So we're going to see, I hope, two main things this morning if you're taking notes. The first is this, is that faith is a battle. Faith is a war. We are in a world, just like we see this morning with these folks a couple thousand years ago, the world really isn't any different. Faith is a battle that we're in. Faith is a war. Are you going to actually believe the radical claims of Jesus and who he says he is? Can Jesus really be your hope? And that's a significant question. And really that question drives you to to see that faith really is a battleground. Your heart is a battleground. Faith is always going to be at war with what? Doubt, right? Faith isn't unreasonable, but yet faith, and we'll see this this morning, faith pushes you beyond your own understanding of reason. There's a sense of timing here. You know, do you have a sense of timing and you wish that your sense of timing and God's sense of timing synced up, right? But does God's sense of timing sync with ours? No! In fact, faith pushes us to not uh, reason, but it pushes us beyond our understanding of reason or beyond our understanding of God and his sense of timing or beyond our circumstances. So we see this morning in an in instance with this little girl, right? The, the little girl dies as Jesus is encountering and talking with this woman. The guys come and say, Jesus, or Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the master anymore. It's too late, Jairus. Your daughter's dead. It's over. That's the natural reaction. It's final. Death's final. It's over. And then what does Jesus say? No, it's not over. She's not really dead. She's just sleeping. And then the crowd mocks Jesus because it makes no sense. And so Mark's trying to show us that faith is a battleground. Faith is a war and that it is fought on the battleground of your heart. I love in God's providence how he orchestrates our services. You know, I'm not some great master pastor here who figures out all the readings and all, you know, it's amazing as we talk, even the scriptures this morning, Marty talked about the heart, that faith is fought on the battleground of the human heart. And we're going to see this morning something else, that not only do we live in a broken world where faith is a battle and it's fought on the battleground of your heart, but also the second thing I hope we'll see this morning is the power and the presence of Jesus. You see, God didn't intend for the world that we live in to stay in this condition. In fact, God is 
working in the brokenness and in the condition of this world. He's invading this brokenness through the person of Jesus. And how is he repairing and redeeming this world? He's using the ultimate tool of Jesus himself. And in the middle of what we think is an overwhelmingly sad story we encounter with these two folks this morning, we see the power and the compassion of Jesus breaking in. That Jesus is intersecting his power and his majesty and his mercy and his purpose. He's intersecting that, those things, those characteristics of who he is with the despair and the hopelessness of these folks and their stories. In fact, Jesus has far more power and has far more authority than we can wrap our brains and our heart around, doesn't he? And we see that this morning, that these folks are surrounded by Jesus and his power and his majesty and his compassion and his love. And so we're going to see that in the lives of these two folks today. And, and, and as we're looking at these stories, let me let you, I'm going to give you permission here to begin to ask this question. So if you've got this mental noise in your head of why should Jesus care about these two folks, that's okay. Because yes, Jesus was on a mission to the cross to bring redemption to the, all of creation. But even on his mission to the cross, he still cares individually for the lives of these two folks that we encounter today. And we're going to see his compassion for the details not only of their lives, but we'll see Jesus and his compassion for the very details of your life. So Jesus is going back across the lake with his disciples. He had just been in contact with the scarcing demoniac. The guy's life was transformed. Still one of my favorite stories of Scripture. He comes back across the lake to the region of Galilee, gets off the boat, and as Mark shows us masterfully, the crowds, once again, surround Jesus. He's overrun by the crowds because the word has been spreading that here is this not only powerful rabbi, but this powerful teacher who performs miracles, amazing miracles. And so the crowds are swelling to see Jesus do amazing things. And Mark gives us this picture of two folks who come, Jairus, right, who's the ruler of a synagogue. Now, he's not the CEO or the president of the synagogue. Ruler of the synagogue meant that he was like the president of the board of deacons, if you will. Uh, his role was to, to conduct the flow of the tabernacle worship. And so Jairus is pretty far up in this uh, hierarchy in the rulership of this tabernacle, probably a head deacon or so. And so he would have come to Jesus and he would have been well known in his community, right? He's a head deacon in the synagogue. He would, everybody would have known who Jairus was in his community. And so, and Mark doesn't tell us if Jairus was friendly towards Jesus or not. But we know already in the life of Jesus, as we've seen in Mark, that the Jewish authorities were already against Jesus, right? Because Jesus was claiming to be God, to be infinite, to be power, all-powerful. And so they were knowing and believing that Jesus was heretical, and so we are assuming here that Jairus, though he's well-known by his community, he was Jewish, he's up there in the Jewish authority levels, he was taking a huge risk, right, in coming to see Jesus. In fact, Mark tells us that he came and he fell before Jesus in his feet. For a, uh, a higher-up male, uh, really male in general, back then, you never got down on your knees. You just didn't do that. That was not proper. Just like, you know, the story of the prodigal son when it says that the, the, the father went running after his son. Very, very uh, social faux pas. Men didn't run back then. You wouldn't hike up your skirt and run. <laughs> you just didn't do that. You wouldn't go before a rabbi and fall before your feet. Very socially unacceptable thing for a man to do. And here is the synagogue ruler, Jairus, well-known in his community, falling at the feet of Jesus and pleading with Jesus. And when you plead, you don't whisper, oh, Jesus, 
When you plead, what you're doing, Jesus, help me. He's saying it as loud as he can. He was bowing in humility. He was desperate. And the, therein lies the risk that he was seen by this great crowd of people. Is that Jairus? Bowing at the feet of, can you believe this? So he's bowing at the feet of Jesus, pleading with Jesus. He had heard of Jesus' miracles. In fact, I think Jairus realizes that Jesus really is his daughter's last chance. And isn't that true? Like many of us who have come to Christ, it wasn't necessarily the love of Jesus that we came to a realization first, but it was really the desperation that brought us to Jesus. That we began to see that, really, Jesus, you really are my last hope. And i got to come to you. And there's a principle here that I want us to see this morning. If you're taking notes, it's this. Get this. That despair is commonly a prelude to grace. Despair is commonly a prelude to grace. Jairus is taking this huge risk to be publicly seen with Jesus. Then, much less, he's bowing down and emphatically crying out for Jesus to help him. Because the religious establishment had condemned Jesus. And yet Jairus puts those fears aside because he was in a desperate place. And his desperation was God's grace working in his life to bring him to Jesus. Jairus realized that Jesus was his daughter's last hope. So his well-being, his prominence, his social status, all those things didn't matter anymore. He radically fell before Christ. Desperate faith, you know, I love this old hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground I stand on is what? Sinking sand, that's right. To Jairus, he realized, all other ground that I have stood on in my life is just sinking sand. That God has brought me to a desperate place where Jesus is my only answer and all other ground that I stand on is sinking sand. And so he comes to Jesus. Desperate faith leads you to do radical things things. Now, when's the last time that you begin to just chunk your reputation and your pride and your status and what people think of you to the wayside because you cared more about Jesus? When's the last time you ran to Jesus because you were in a desperate place? And when you do that, who cares about what people think of you? You ever been in that place before? That is a really blessed place to be. When you can just stop caring about what people think because you want to go to Jesus. And sometimes God has to bring you to a desperate place for you to begin to push those things aside and you come to him. So let me ask you a couple of questions, just kind of a midterm break here of application. Where are you being called to radical faith in your life? Where are you being called? Are you being called to radical faith? Where are you being called to radical hope? When everything around you says that there is no hope like Jairus, there is no other hope, and you're running to Jesus because of radical hope that he is the last answer. Where are you being called to courageous action? You know, it, it took tremendous courage for Jairus to approach Jesus, even though he was desperate. And maybe some of you here this morning are being called to publicly identify yourself with Jesus, and it will take courageous faith to do that. I'm really particularly thinking of middle school, high school, even college folks. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you adults too, but middle school, high school, college folks, even elementary folks if you're here, it takes faith to publicly proclaim that you love and you trust Jesus, doesn't it? Man, high school is one of the hard, middle school especially, oh my goodness, what a hard place. Did anybody love middle school? Raise your hand. 
Not a single, oh, one person. Okay, wow. You are definitely not the norm. You're the exception. Middle school is such a hard place. High school is such a hard place. And to publicly profess that you love and you trust Jesus is a dangerous thing to do, middle school or high school. A lot of pressure on you, right? What about college? You know, I remember in college, uh, I majored in philosophy and religion for a semester. <laughs> not long. But I remember that my professors were publicly berating Jesus, publicly berating God and his word. God is a joke. He doesn't really exist. You know, professors openly mock Christ and Christianity. Peers openly mock Christ and Christianity. Where are you being called to this kind of desperate, radical faith where you are publicly proclaiming and taking courageous action, saying, yeah, I do trust Jesus because he met me in the most desperate place of my life. And how are you answering that call? Well, Jairus falls before Jesus, right? And he pleads for him to come. And uh, Jesus, Mark, 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 Mark mentions simply here that Jesus just went with him. And that statement is short, but it's amazing. It really is a precious statement because as Jairus falls before Jesus, Jesus drops what he's doing and in his compassion and in his love immediately responds and goes to Jairus' house. And that shows me, and I think Mark makes it really plain that God cares about the details of your life. Jesus, look at me, Jesus cares about the details of your life. Every single one of them, he does. He really does. And of course, he doesn't head there alone because there's this great crowd surrounding Jesus. He goes with his disciples. And then Mark almost like pulls up the picture in a picture. If you have a new TV, you know, we used to not have this, but you, know, you pull up the picture in the picture. Mark pulls up this picture in a picture and makes a split screen show here where Jesus has just encountered Jairus and talking with him. And all of a sudden he's going through this crowd and Mark gives this detailed description of this woman who is seeking healing. Well, let's look at this description, Mark 25, 24 through 26. There was a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered under the care of many doctors, Mark tells us. Spent everything, her life savings, trying to find treatment. And yet, instead of getting better, Mark says, she gets worse. She had chronic bleeding for 12 years. I don't know if you've ever suffered with a chronic illness before. Or maybe you've known somebody who suffers with a chronic illness. We have a dear, precious friend who was one of my former pastors and co-workers, Dave Gobb, who is... A uh, pastor who had a major stroke and is now paralyzed on his left side and lives the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And completely dependent upon the, the in-home nurse and his wife and his children to, to, to even use the bathroom. And he went from an incredible, gifted preacher and pastor to an invalid in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And he wrestles with depression and it is so painful to watch him go through this. That's kind of a picture here that she for 12 years suffered chronically under the care of doctors, spent all of her money trying to find relief, and nothing got better, but it actually got worse. And again, we see that sometimes even with the best human intervention, it doesn't help, does it? And medical understanding back then was very limited. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish Talmud tells us that there were 11 cures for this specific ailment that this lady had, and, and they were just ridiculous, non superstitious nonsense. Let me read just one. That she, to find healing, should go and carry a piece of barley which has been harvested from the droppings of a white she-donkey. And if she were to carry that with her for seven days, she will be healed of her illness. Would you see how much hogwash that was? But she had done that. She had spent everything she had on these superstitious healings and never got healed. No wonder she couldn't find a solution. 
So just as Jairus took this great risk to be with Jesus, to be seen with Jesus, so this woman takes great risk to be with Jesus as well because back then the Levitical laws classified, well, even back then in that culture, women were on the lower totem pole as it was. Men were really higher than women. And you even see that today if you go in the Middle East. You see, I mean, you see it in Muslim countries. We saw it in London when we were there for a few weeks that you see so many Muslim men walking in about 20 yards behind is the wife. Back then, women very much so put on the low rung of the totem pole. And the fact that she had a chronic illness of menstrual bleeding, because that's what it was, that made her an absolute outcast of society. She was treated just like a leper was treated. She was really that far outcast from her society. She was despised. And so I want you to see this. It was an unthinkable act of courage for her to be in public much less in this crowd surrounding Jesus, who everybody knew as this great miracle worker and rabbi. And the fact for her to go and touch Jesus, this great rabbi, was unthinkable. She was, had so much courage here. She had a, a desperate faith that drew her to run after Jesus, to drive her to do such a risky move. She was determined to touch Jesus because she knew that he was her last hope. Again, you see this that inherent in true faith is this measure of desperation. True faith has a measure of desperation. Think about this. True faith recognizes that we live in a broken world. True faith doesn't make you cover your eyes so that you don't see. You know, what is that? Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, those little monkeys or whatever, you know. That's not true faith. True faith opens your eyes to the true brokenness around you in this world. True faith opens your eyes not only to the new vistas of brokenness in our world, but it opens your eyes to the own mess inside of you. You know, as you grow in holiness, as you grow in trust and intimacy with the Lord, you would think that you would see less and less of your sin. But folks, if you haven't experienced this, let me break the bad news and maybe the best news you've ever heard. As you grow closer to Jesus, you see more of your sin. (laughs) That's the way it works. That as you grow in deeper dependence and intimacy with the Lord, you see more and more of your own mess. And guess what that desperation drives you to? It drives you to Jesus. It doesn't drive you to try harder or I'm going to sin less. No, actually true faith opens you to see that you sin more and more and you need more and more of a bigger and bigger and bigger Jesus, a bigger and bigger cross of Christ. So true faith uh, enables and helps you to see the vistas of brokenness in the world, new vistas of brokenness inside of you. True faith helps you embrace that you are a needy person. We are so independent and self-centered and prideful people that we hate to admit that we're needy. But guess what, folks? Cheer up. You're worse off than you can ever imagine, number one. And true faith says, I am a needy person. In fact, I am far more needy than I ever imagined. And then it makes you run to Jesus because true faith says Jesus is your only hope. So there's nowhere else for this lady to go. There was nowhere else for Jairus to go. There were no more answers for them And this is a little rabbit trail here, but it's true. Isn't it true that when we see someone who is hurting that we love and we care for, that we try to offer them a system of wisdom or a system of answers to help them, but no system was going to help her. No system was going to help Jairus and his daughter. No system fixes or answers our deepest needs or questions. We ultimately find our ultimate hope and our answer in the person and the work of Jesus. You see, folks, that's the center of Christianity. It's not systems. It's not to-do lists. It's not the five things that I got to do or I got to believe. 
The center of the gospel, the center of Christianity is the person and the work of Jesus. And when we love folks and we have folks in our life who are hurting, how often does our theology make us people mechanics? We think we're the best people mechanics in the world. Oh, I know your problem here. I'm just going to lift the hood here. And, oh, yeah, here's the problem. Here are five things that if you would just do these things, you'll be good. Do these five. Take this verse and don't call me in the morning. <laughs> it's kind of what we believe. But the reality is that none of us have the ability to change anyone. We, we don't even have the ability to change ourselves, much less somebody else. Because, and Mark makes it so clear, change is always an act of grace change in your life is always an act of grace. And that's why Mark is showing us that faith is always desperate. And the most radical and desperate faith is only is as good as its object. You see, faith in and of itself cannot save you. There are folks who are going to be standing at the judgment before the Lord as we all will someday. And Paul says that every tongue confess and every knee shall bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will stand before him and there are going to be some folks standing before the bar of justice who have said, God, I have had faith. I have tons of faith. And God says, you absolutely have had lots of faith. You are a faithful parent or a faithful deacon or a faithful church member or a faithful United States citizen, but you did not trust the person and the work of my son Jesus. And there are going to be folks who are spending an eternity in hell because their faith wasn't in the person or the work of Jesus. Not elder status or parent status or good citizen status. Those things are meaningless compared to having faith in the person and the work of Jesus because faith is as only good as its object. And this woman had chosen the right object for her faith and nothing stopped her, right? Punishment, fear, scorn from the community. It didn't matter. She didn't care. What got in the way of her faith? Nothing. But what gets in the way of our faith? What stops you? You know, I think so many times we have major events that happen in our life that challenge our faith, but sometimes it really is just the smaller things that happen in our life that challenge our faith. You know, we have months and months of tough financial circumstances and we begin to get depressed. God, where are you in this? Maybe it's parenting your children. God, leave. Talk about a tool of sanctification, being a parent. We parent our children and we feel like a failure and we, God, have you really called me to be a parent here? Too much traffic, too, a flat tire. Uh, the cereal boxes are empty. Ah! <laughs> you know, what gets in the way of our faith? Even the small stuff sometimes does, doesn't it? There are countless things that distract us and get in the way of our faith. But I'm asking you this morning, are you pushing through the crowd to get to Jesus? Because she was saying, there is no place anymore in my life that I can find hope. What I'm going through is hard, but I am going to touch the garment of Jesus. And I will not let go of the belief that Jesus is my only hope. And so she reaches out. Mark tells us that power goes out of Jesus. This word dunamis is the first time in, in Mark that this word dunamis or Greek word for dynamite, where we get our word dynamite, power, goes out of Jesus. Jesus has this sensation of weakness, of draining. He has lost power so that she could gain it. Do you see that? That Jesus lost power so she could gain it. He turns around and he asks the crowd, who has touched my clothes? And the disciples are like, really, Jesus? There's hundreds of people around you and you're asking who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Well, we see in this question that Jesus is interested in his work as a powerful and compassionate Savior, but he is not done with his work in the life of this woman. You see, 
she came for healing, right? She came for a touch and run, a drive-by gracing. That's what she wanted. You know, boom, okay, I'm good, you know, and to keep going. But Jesus wouldn't allow that, would he? He says, no, I am not done with you. He, he forced her to go public. She had lived in so much shame and despair, and he's, he's not doing this to shame her, but he's doing this to restore her to society. See what he's doing? Why did he insist that she go public? Because she needed it. She had this superstitious understanding of who Jesus was, superstitious understanding of his power. She thought that it was his touch that would heal her and she would be good. She thought that Jesus' power was manageable. Ooh, this is the kidney punch for me. If I could just manage his power, I can manage his power and then I, I can get enough of it and I'm good, I'll be healed and I can go. Or maybe we try to manage God in his timetable. God, if you would just only act now, then, then I'm good. Do you see how, isn't that true of us, how we try to manage his power? We try to manage God in his grace. We try to tell him, God, I need this, right? Jesus says, your faith is what healed you. Now that you know that, you are now in a life-transforming relationship with me. You see, there's a different, huge difference between superstitious folks who get this bodily healing and a life-transformed follower of Jesus for all eternity. And here is a principle here. If you go to Jesus, he will always ask of you far more than you originally planned to give him. If you go to Jesus, he's always going to ask from you far more than you originally planned to give. For this woman, Christ wanted all of her, not just for her healing, but he wanted all of her. For Jairus, Jesus said, I'm going to totally redefine your understanding of faith and trust. And so while Jesus is dealing with this woman and healing her and restoring her back to herself and, and saving her, these men come to reach Jesus and to Jairus and report that this 12-year-old little girl has, has died. And think for just a minute, and Mark sets this tension at what in the world, if you were that father, you were Jairus, chomping at the bit, Jesus, we need to go. <laughs> She's dying, Jesus. This woman, you know, she has let her bleed for another 30 minutes. Let's go. My daughter's dying. Can you imagine the tension he must have felt? And then how dejected and probably angry he felt as these guys said, Jesus, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Put yourself in that moment, the agony, the deflated heart, the deflated hopes that your last chance for your daughter is gone. It's blown it. She, Jesus has blown it. He's committed the biggest malpractice in the world. He's blown it. She's gone forever. But what does Jesus say to Jairus? Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. That's a significant statement because what informs your understanding or what un informs your view of life? You see, here's the reality of what Jesus was doing with Jairus when he tells them this. He's saying, Jairus, you are made in the image of God. Your daughter is made in the image of God. And you don't live, you live your life based on experience, not on facts. And we live our life based on the interpretation of facts, don't we? We are really good at being interpreters of facts. We have this interpretation radar, right? Man, Facebook's the worst, isn't it? Somebody puts a comment on there and they don't mention you and you all of a sudden interpret that to mean that they don't like me. <laughs> or they didn't click like on my picture, they must not like Do you see how we do that? And that's just a very small way, but we live our life interpreting the facts, not based on the facts, but the interpretation of those facts. We are constantly interpreting our surroundings, constantly interpreting our relationships, constantly interpreting 
our emotions. We are constant theologians, philosophers, and archaeologists digging through life trying to make sense of stuff. And we do this day after day, hour after hour, don't we? And often our response to life is based on how we interpret everything. And most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. But we don't put life on pause and say, okay, I have to think about this, what's going on right now because I'm the interpreter. That's not the way, that's not the way it works, but it still happens. So Jesus says to Jairus, that same desperate faith that you had when you came and fell to my feet, hang on, Jairus. Don't let death get in the way of your faith. Let me be your interpreter, Jairus. That's what Jesus wants to do with us. Friends, beloved, let me be your interpreter. And so they come to Jairus' house. It's this chaotic scene because the custom of the day when somebody died, they would literally hire professional mourners. So they probably had these professional mourners on standby because they knew she was going to die. And so these professional mourners are, are freaking out and wailing and weeping. And Jesus says, wow, this wailing and weeping, the child is not dead but asleep. And then Mark gives us this rapid transition. These people who had been mourning and wailing so loudly in an instant notice, instead of weeping and wailing, they change from an instant to laughter and mocking Jesus. And you see, in a real way, these stories make it clear to you to us that you can't have a neutral faith you either believe who Jesus says he is and you live out of that belief and it shapes the way you, that you interpret life shapes the way that, uh, the things that you face every day or you mock his existence and you live your life based on your own reason and your own ability to interpret the facts interpret the emotions the feelings and when these people laughed at Jesus they were saying, hi, we know better, Jesus. See, there's no comfortable neutrality here. What does Jesus do? He sternly runs off these professional mourners who turn to mockers very quickly. And then he takes Jairus and his wife and Peter and James and John. He goes into where the child was. And I love this moment. This is such a sweet moment. He takes the little girl by the hand. And he says to her, Talitha kume, which means little girl, get up, arise. This phrase, Talitha kume, in the Aramaic, literally means little lamb. Honey. It's a term of endearment that parents would use with their children. Sweetie, honey. Honey. That's what Jesus is saying. Honey, it's time to get up. Sweetie, little lamb, it's time to get up. It's such a fatherly term. It's such a tender term. Honey, it's time to get up. What a precious gift of God to us, folks. That he reveals to us the tenderness of the heart of Jesus. You know, Jesus was on a mission to bring redemption to the world through the cross. His ultimate goal is the renewal of all things, and yet here he uses this tender term like a loving father. Sweetie, little lamb, honey, it's time to get up. And he uses this term to show us that he loves her, and he uses this term to show us that he, that he loves us. He cares about what she was going through. There are no details too small for Jesus. You believe that, folks. There are no details in your life that are too small for Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that at the end of time, in the renewal of all things, that Jesus comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. That's what we sing every Christmas, right? Joy to the world. He has come to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. So in the smallest moments of the cursed and in the grandest seismic moments of the curse there is a savior who comes and demonstrates his awesome compassion and power 
And immediately the little girl, Mark tells us, gets up. She's not too weak to walk, you know, for a few weeks. She immediately is healed. She jumps up, and everybody's overcome with amazement. And then the story ends. Interesting, Jesus says, don't let anybody know about this. And he says this because he is in control of his ministry on earth. He is not yet ready for the culmination of his ministry to come, which was the cross. There was more that he had to do. But then he gives us this detail. Mark gives us a stunning little detail. He says, Go and give the little girl something to eat, Jesus says. And in that moment, he overcomes death. And then in a quick, quick instant, he begins to appease the little girl's hunger. What father, a fathomless power and amazing compassion Jesus shows us. Well, this is where we live, folks. This is the world that we live in. And it's broken, isn't it? And I know that some of you are here this morning and you are facing things that you never ever thought you'd face. I never signed up, Lord. I didn't bargain for this. There's some of you who are in situations where you still, you just don't know what to do. God, I didn't bargain for this. I don't know. What, I have no roadmap for this. I'm not programmed to figure this out. And there, there are some of you here that where you are in places where not, people don't even know how hard it is for you, but you feel, you feel alone you feel like no one knows you and you feel like it's beyond your wisdom or strength or understanding to know what to do. But these accounts are in the Bible to show us that your world has been invaded by Jesus who is glorious in his compassion and in his power and in his majesty and in his grace and in his mercy. And he cares about the fallen world and he cares about you and me. There's one more thing here that I've got to to look at just briefly. You know, our sense of timing and God's sense of timing are so different, aren't they? Now, Jairus must have been so frustrated and in shock when Jesus is going to heal his daughter. It's his last hope, and he stops and begins to deal with this woman who'd been bleeding. Jesus, you've got to act now. God, you have to act now. And isn't that so true of us, friends? God, you have to act now. God, you have to fill in the blank now. Do you know that our sense of timing and God's senses of timing will never, ever sync up, ultimately. God's sense of timing is always going to confound our sense of timing, isn't it? Because His grace never operates on our schedule. <laughs> Not true. His grace never operates on our schedule. You see, God doesn't say, I will not be hurried even though I love you. I will not be hurried even though I love you. God doesn't say that. God says, I will not be hurried because I love you. I will not be hurried because I love you. You see, God loves his sons and his daughters so much that he will sometimes seemingly delay his grace and his action in your life to begin to knock out of your heart the pride and the self-righteousness and the arrogance where God, I demand that you have to be on my schedule. Sometimes he will delay his grace in order to kick that stuff out of our heart. So is God delaying something in your life? right now, beloved? Are you ready to throw in the towel and give up? Are you impatient with him? Because, beloved, there are crucial factors that are going on behind the scenes in God's providence that we cannot understand. But Jesus tenderly asks us to trust him. Because, you see, Jesus was heading to a place of weakness and death that was far more infinitely profound of a weakness that this lady felt or the death that this father felt. You see, on the cross, 
Jesus lost his very life so we could be raised and be free from sin and death. He lost ultimate power so we could gain strength in life. So this is my prayer for you, dear ones, who I love. I do. I love you, but more so the Father loves you. And here is my prayer, that you don't try and hurry Jesus. Jesus, you got to hurry up. My prayer is that you wouldn't try to hurry Jesus, but you would let him take you by the hand and say, little one, soon, soon it will be time to wake up. Little one, soon it will be time to wake up. Trust me, I'm a good father, and I love you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we need to hear these precious promises and realities. And Lord, we often fail miserably at believing these. And we do often so try to run our lives based on interpreting the facts instead of just trusting the fact giver and fact maker. So Father, would you help us? God, uh, you are your own interpreter and you will make it plain for us. And you move in mysterious ways. Lord, help us to trust you, the Father, the one who does move in mysterious ways, yet whose wonders are to be performed. Lord, help us to to hook our faith into these promises and into you. For you're a good Father, and we love you. And we pray these things in your name.